All right, well, again, good morning. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, and we've made our way as far as verse 27. Let's uh, take a moment to read it together. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wished that others would do to you, you do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that for you? Even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is it to you? For even the sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great in heaven, and you will be the sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful." There is no doubt that the Bible contains sayings of Jesus that are extremely difficult to not only uh, apply, but to obey in a consistent manner. Often in the New Testament, as Jesus was teaching in different places at different times, after he would teach, he would often uh, record for us, I should say the writers would often record for us, that many would depart from Jesus at that time. They would leave and cease to follow him no longer. Because what he was saying to them was too difficult for them to either comprehend, but more likely for them to apply and to live out throughout their personal life. This is one of those sayings that I wish I could tell you that this is simply metaphorical or some simple hyperbole, but I believe that Jesus is stating exactly what Jesus meant to state when he stated this. This is how he asks you and I as disciples, followers of Jesus, to act and conduct ourselves as Christians here on this earth. Now, we find ourselves in a context that must be noticed before we go further into our look at these verses. Back up with me, if you will, to verse 22 of chapter 6. He says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil, on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven." So their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus is saying, this is what you can anticipate in following me. An individual who lives as Christ has asked them to live, to live uncompromisingly in this world that we currently occupy, 
is going to attract and provoke hatred from the people around us. It's, inavo- it's unavoidable. Jesus said, they've hated me, they're going to hate you. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Due to the fact that we live in a manner contrary to the world, as we are salt and light onto the world, irritating to some, unfortunately, and exposing the darkness within the hearts and the minds of the individuals through the light in which we shine. Jesus is now setting a standard for you and I as believers in the context of being persecuted for him, how we shall respond in that wake of persecution. He is not saying here that there is not a time to defend oneself. He is not saying that there isn't a time where if our material possessions are taken that we cannot report it to the authorities and uh, seek to have those material possessions returned. He is stating, however, though, that as we are persecuted for his name's sake in that context, here is how he would have us respond. And I will tell you that this cuts against everything that is natural within us. I don't know about you, but I can often start the day with phenomenal devotions, spending time in prayer and in the Word, feeling as if I am literally in the throne room of God, leave my home, get into my car, start to drive, and next thing you know, I've gone from heaven to hell. And if you've lived here in any length of time, you'd understand what I mean, that there is very unique driving habits here in Chicago. If it's not the other drivers you have to worry about, it's the potholes. I drove by one the other day, and there was a Honda Civic in it. Uh, It was enormous. We live in a time now where we are being provoked by the world in many, many different ways. And how we respond to the world is an opportunity or an opportunity to unfortunately discourage individuals from coming to Jesus Christ. Saturdays are always one of my busiest days. It's a day that I take to really consolidate and edit the message for Sunday as I've been preparing and studying and looking at things all week from the grammar, the history, and so forth. And on Saturdays, I really just kind of take that day to look through everything that I have to make sure that what is being presented uh, fits well and flows well throughout the context of the message. So whenever I get interrupted on a Saturday, it's often difficult for me. And yesterday, unfortunately, with the wonderful weather that we have here in Chicago, it was 75 last Sunday, and next week we have a seven-inch snowstorm. Unfortunately, two of the units in our condo building flooded due to a roof leak. I am on the board of the condo association, and a text came to me saying that, you know, we have a problem. The, we have two units that are flooding uh, significantly. Can you come and help? And you're torn. It's just like, well, okay, now this is my day and so forth. But I, I'm so thankful that I put down the word and I put down my things to go and help to be able to display the love of Christ to those who are in need in our building. Sometimes we cannot predict when those opportunities are going to call upon us and responding properly at those times is so important. And the only way to do that, to, uh, to respond properly in those particular opportunities, is to prepare your heart beforehand so you are ready 
for those opportunities when they arrive. And yesterday, instead of sitting you know, in my room praying and going through the, the text and so forth and really polishing it up, I was digging trenches and looking to find drain tile uh, and finding out why the roof is leaking and so forth and why the roof is not draining and taking a rotter and shoving it up the pipe to see if we can only to discover that the pipe had broken with inside the wall and just one thing after another and the snow's coming down uh, as it was yesterday but yet I was exactly where God would have me to be and I'm so thankful that my heart was prepared for that interruption before I got there. That is the key to devotions and to uh, having a good prayer life. Often people get discouraged in their devotional life because as they are reading or as they are praying, they'll come across sections of the scripture which don't apply to their immediate circumstance. And they say then, and they conclude, unfortunately, that, well, the Bible is just not relevant for me at this time. But the Bible often foresees what's still yet going to happen and prepares you for that before it happens. And so often in my devotions, I find myself reading something and then a week later applying that which I read a week earlier. And Jesus is preparing his disciples, knowing full well that he is going to be the ultimate example of everything that he asks of them here in our text in his personal life as he gets closer to the cross. And he understands that the the example in which he's asking of his disciples is truly paralleling the heart of God the Father. Whenever it comes down to moral conduct, whenever it comes down to biblical ethics, biblical conduct, biblical ethics always reflect the heart and the nature of God. It isn't that God is here and he ha- and, and conducts himself in a certain set of rules and then asks us to conduct ourselves in a set of rules opposed to that. They are all one and the same. He is asking us to live as we would live knowing the heart of God. For example, notice verse 36 with me. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Forgive, because your Father has forgiven you. Love, because I have loved you. This is our motivation. Because of what we have been generously given by God, we are now to extend to others, including those who would oppose us in our Christian values and life. Now, this is very difficult. Because the natural man within me wants to react in a knee-jerk method of retaliation. Not only does this teaching of Jesus ask us to act and truly live in a manner of supernatural ability, but it's also exposing the selfishness of our own heart. It's unique in this way, and it is truly troubling when you read it initially because you are immediately confronted with the reality, I can't do this. This is, I am not perfectly capable of doing this in and of myself. And that's why God has given us the Holy Spirit that we may reflect the character of God in and through our conduct and our ethics. Notice with me 
that whenever you want to explain the basic explanation of righteousness, righteousness is living in relationship with the people around you as God would live with those individuals. There are only certain aspects that God does not allow us to venture in, and those are the aspects of holding that individual to a righteous standard through the person of Jesus Christ. But let us now pick it up in verse 27, if you will. He says, But I say to you who hear, some will hear, some will understand, some will reject it from the very beginning and cease to listen any further. But he is speaking specifically to those who have been given the capacity to hear and to understand. As John wrote later in Revelation, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Jesus is saying to you who follow me, we have been given the capacity to hear and to understand the things of God through the Spirit of God. So he's speaking to us. Love your enemies. Now, going back 2,000 years, we'd have to understand that the enemies of the Jewish people initially were the Romans. And it would be easy to historically contextualize this passage and say he's only referring to those relationships, the Jews and the Romans. And some have done this. Yet, unfortunately, exegetically, because of what he offers for us next, shows us that this can be in a context of any believer in Jesus Christ being uh, opposed by an individual who protests to their following of Jesus Christ. For example, I believe that the enemy is defined by what follows. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. These are circumstances that any one of us can find ourselves in. It doesn't have to be at the hand of a Roman that an individual may hate me. It doesn't necessarily need to be from the mouth of a Roman for someone to curse me or to so, for someone to abuse me. This doesn't have to be confined to a Roman to a Jew. It can be anyone who opposes my faith in Jesus Christ. And God is now saying, as they oppose you for your faith in Jesus Christ, love your enemies. Love these individuals. And the word there is the word agape. It is a selfless kind of love. It is a love that seeks the best for that individual above your own personal needs and wants. It is a love that was uniquely defined by the life of Jesus Christ. The Greek language has many different words for the word love. In fact, there are four. There's the word eros, which is an exotic physical love in the acts of intimacy, physical intimacy. There's the word phileo, which means uh, a love between two friends, a brotherly type of love that is used often in the New Testament. There's a word called storge, which means the love and affection for an immaterial object, something that cannot return love uh, to you, but you love as a result of your affections being placed upon it. For example, a material item that you may have that you love. But then there was this obscure word in that culture that wasn't used very often. In fact, biblically, it is used the most in ancient literature. 
But in extra biblical literature, it was very rare to find and to discover because of the nature of this type of love. It was known as a selfless love. However, though, the Greek society was very selfish in its pursuits. It was truly all about me. And that's interesting because in our culture, as we see ourselves, of course, moving closer and closer to that, and in some cases, I think, overrun by that philosophy and that thinking, let us understand that all of our philosophies and thinking are greatly tied into the Greek uh, philosophers of that day. And so this obscure word agape, Jesus takes out of you know, it's rare usage and begins to use it quite often to the point when Paul began to write letters to churches in the Gentile world and they would read the Greek word agape, he began to realize, I believe, that this word had different meaning and different definitions to different people. So he there found it necessary to define it, which he does for us in 1 Corinthians 13 showing that this is the highest state of love. It's a love that Jesus showed us. And instead of simply defining a word by other Greek words, he defines a word, what appears, and I would argue, based on the description of the actions of a person there in 1 Corinthians 13. And that's why it's so easy to insert the word Jesus in the place of the word love in our English text because it is characteristic of everything that he has done for us. So Paul basically is defining the word by describing the person of Jesus Christ. This is agape. And now God is calling us to love in such a fashion, our enemies. Now again, this is completely contradictive to any natural reaction that I would have to an individual. But if we believe that we are living by supernatural means, then God is going to ask us to live in a supernatural way. And there are many who believe that the only manifestation of a supernatural world is through miracles. However, I would state that the Bible clearly demonstrates for us that one who can live beyond the natural man would have to be living in a supernatural means. For example, one individual, very interesting, Gandhi, who of course led India through the uh, revolt, the peaceful revolt against the British uh, occupying empire, he was schooled and taught in England, and part of his schooling at that time was Christianity. And he took these lessons of Jesus and applied them to civil disobedience, and he was able to resist the... uh, the uh, empire, the British empire, and also rebel against it in a peaceful manner by applying these things. But what he discovered was that he himself often struggled, as he wrote in some of his writings, because though his actions were displayed in one way, his heart was completely in a different place. He wanted to be violent at times and yet suppressed that natural desire to do so. 
Jesus is not asking us for just arbitrary obedience to these things. He's asking us to have a change of heart and an attitude change towards these people that when it comes to those experiences and those opportunities and those confrontations, our heart is already prepared beforehand to respond in the manner in which God prescribes in his word. Gandhi couldn't do it through the natural man. God is asking us to do it through the supernatural ability of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying that this is what's going to have to be displayed in the life of one who is going to follow after me. And so the bar is extremely high. To do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, to pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. The striking here is referring to a manner of insult where one would be slapped with the back of the hand. In the, that culture, at that time, it was, a, um, it was a violation of Greek and Roman law to do so. And one who insults another in this way could be fined for their actions, heavily fined for their actions. And Jesus says, instead of taking them to court and, and fighting them through the law, when they persecute you and insult you in such a way for my name's sake, tur- turn the other cheek also. Forgive them. Don't, don't retaliate. Forgive them. When an individual was robbed of their tunic, they would often leave the individual with their tunic because it was the undergarment that was actually on the skin. And when one would be robbed of their, uh, of their cloak, if they were to press charges against that individual, that individual would have to return the cloak but also give them their personal tunic in response to that violation. So the one convicted of robbery would have to give over his tunic to the one who had been robbed as a fine for their action. But Jesus says, if someone robs you because of my name's sake, then let them have your tunic also. Give it to them. You know, sometimes when we read these Greek words and these uh, obscure Uh, descriptions of things in that culture, such as cloaks and tunics, we don't get the full effect. You know, it's like one who you're witnessing and you're sharing the faith, let's say at the local mall or at some place in a public area, and the individual goes and steals your car. It'd be like chasing after him and said, listen, you might as well take the fob also. It's not something that you would normally do but to show the supernatural attitude of God within your heart, this is the way that God would have you respond to these individuals. Verse 30, give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now, this is, we cannot read these without saying this is difficult to accept. We often say that all that we have 
belongs to the Lord and we are merely stewards of those material possessions. Jesus is saying to his disciples, if they take these things from you, don't demand them back. If they beg from you, give to them. Show them that the material possessions are not nearly as important to you as they are. And that's really the emphasis in which Jesus is trying to convey here in this text. That these people who are persecuting you for your faith in Jesus Christ mean more to you than your personal physical well-being and your material possessions. And then in verse 31, he sets what we all know as the golden rule. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. The golden rule is not something that Jesus coined himself, but it is actually a play on a teaching that was already prevalent there in Jerusalem that came about in 20 AD from a rabbi named Hillel. Hillel was one of the chief rabbis in Jerusalem at that time. And he was asked by a Gentile to explain the nature of the Mosaic law in a simple one-sentence fashion while the Gentiles stood on one foot. Meaning, give it to me as clearly and as simply as possible in the short amount of time that I can stand on one foot. So Hillel replied with this statement. What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. And this is the manner in which Hillel answered that question from that Gentile. What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. Now, this would be in the negative form. If you don't want it done to you, then don't do it to anybody else. However, though, Jesus changes it to the positive. Whatever you would want someone to do for you, now you do that for them. And by doing so, he set the bar even higher than Hillel did to the Gentile who simply wanted the uh, totality of the law summarized in one fashion. But by making it in the positive affirmation, we are now given a command and an an instruction that is also beyond our natural ability. Yes, it would be easy for me to act that way to those who I believe deserve it, showing them what I would want one to show me, doing for one that what naturally I would want done to me. But in the context of me determining their they're deserving of it or not, if they deserve it, well, then it's easy to do. It's easy to do it for someone who loves me. It's easy to do it for uh, someone who cares about me. But Jesus is now saying, do it to your enemy. Do it to the one who despises you. Do it to the one who abuses you and hates you. Do unto others as you would have it done unto you. And again, taking the mindset of the current culture that Jesus conducted his teachings in and raising it to a whole new level. 
And Jesus addresses the affections of our heart in verse 32, if you look there with me. Now, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is it to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Now he is absolutely narrowing our focus of this application. It's one thing for you and I to love each other as Christ loved us and show us each other these type of affections, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I want you to place these affections on those who do not love you, those who hate you, those who abuse you, and so forth. This is the reaction. This is the manner in which I would have you to respond to these people. I believe this weekend we were blessed with another Avengers movie. It's only the 943rd We've had seven different Spider-Mans, four different Hulks, and you know, and I don't know how many Thors and so forth. But it is interesting because now individuals are starting to look at this incredible infatuation with these superheroes. Why are these individuals so attractive to the younger generation today? And there are some who've come up with some interesting conclusions that you can determine for yourself if you feel that they are viable or not. But one believed, this one psychologist wrote, and he stated that the reason that these movies are so popular today is because many of the younger adults in our society today feel helpless. They're looking for a savior. They wish they had supernatural ability to overcome the circumstances in which they personally find themselves within. And these movies, though of course entertainment, fill a need within the psyche, according to this psychologist, of a deep-seated notion within the heart of these people that they feel helpless in the current society in which they live. I thought that was very interesting. I don't know if it's 100% true or not. There may be speculation and conjecture attached to that, but it is interesting to me that so many are looking for such, uh, such an opportunity for supernatural powers. And yet Jesus is saying, that if you truly want to live in a supernatural fashion in this world, live contrary to your own personal nature. Live in a manner that is above even you. And you can do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the key to all of this. Allowing our affections to love these people. Allowing us to do good to those who hate us, to give to those who won't give back, to love our enemies, verse 35, and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. 
We Christians here in the United States of America are struggling with a problem of living for the temporal rather than looking to the eternal. Many Christians believe that we are supposed to be happy all the time in the Lord, that we are never to experience problems, that we are above certain afflictions and so forth, and that difficulties and uh, rough situations aren't really supposed to occur in the Christian life. If you have that idea this morning, I hate to tell you this, but becoming a Christian is only going to make your life more difficult. Because as one said to me, it's easy to float downstream with all the other dead fish. It's much harder to swim against the current and to survive. It is interesting to me that Jesus here is setting the standard so high that not only would the conduct be observed as supernatural amongst those who are witnessing it, for example, as you come to the book of Acts, you have Stephen giving an incredible dissertation through the history of Judaism, the history of the nation of Israel, and it ends up in his uh, execution. They stone him for this accurate dissertation in which he gives. And while he is being stoned, and his life is coming to an end, he cries out in the fashion in which Jesus did also, asking that God would forgive his executioners of the sin in which they are committing. And one who observed that was a young man named Saul, who was watching over the coats of the individuals who were stoning Stephen to death. And as Saul witnessed and watched this individual, this Christian, coming to the end of his life in a brutally fashionable way and forgiving those who were executing him in the, as he was, that supernatural response to that occasion caused Saul to begin to ponder and to consider that the God in whom Stephen serves must be the one true God. That individual, Saul, as he is making his way to Damascus, is thrown off of his horse, stopped by the Lord in his tracks, and the Lord says to him, Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? Meaning, why are you kicking against your own conscience? For there was something happening within Paul even before he came to that encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus where he was knocked off of his horse, There was already something in his heart saying, there is something about these individuals. There's something about these Christians. How can they respond to persecution in the manner in which they are if something uh, other than supernatural activity was occurring within them? There's no possible way. And when it came to his introduction to Jesus, Paul cried out and says, Who are you, my Lord? Paul already knew. And I believe that the greatest witness was Stephen in the life of Paul the Apostle. When it comes to the word witness, we use that word very loosely in Christianity. We say we're going to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. We are going to uh, allow people to uh, hear and to see Jesus Christ in and through us.
But the word witness in the Greek is derived from the word martyr. It means that we become a greater witness for Jesus Christ as we die to ourselves. It means that there may be times where our own physical martyrism would be a testimony of our faith and the reality of Jesus Christ. 11 out of the 12 disciples died in a horrific fashion, and we know when it came to the account of Peter that he first witnessed his wife being crucified, and he could have ceased that crucifixion by denying Jesus Christ. He allowed his wife to be crucified because he knew that Jesus was the truth and there was no other way to eternal life but through him. When Peter was then crucified following his wife, historians tell us that he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in the same manner that his wife was. Still, he could have avoided that by renouncing and recanting his faith in Christ, which he would not do so. He ended up dying for his faith. Jesus says, I'm going to give you power to be able to die unto yourself, spiritually, and possibly in some cases, physically. That supernatural power is demonstrated by reacting in a supernatural way rather than a natural retaliation to these who hate us, our enemies. And notice that he says here, and you will be sons of the Most High. This will be indication and evidence that you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ. Notice then what he says. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now, there are certainly times where God will call us to resist evil in our world. We see that through church history, where God has raised up individuals to, to confront the social injustices of our world, such as slavery, etc. Being Wilberforce in England or even Martin Luther King here in America. But as a witness for Jesus Christ, in the context of one who is persecuting us, let us be kind and grateful to these individuals and respond to their evil, not with evil, but overcoming evil with good. As he then concludes, be merciful as your Father is merciful. Jesus Christ was the ultimate example of this in every single way. The Bible tells us, for God so loved us in a way that he sent his only begotten son. That demonstration of love was the greatest sacrifice that was ever made in the history of mankind. And he did so while we were yet sinners, the Bible says, in rebellion, at enmity with God one who opposes and responds negatively to all that God is and does. Yet Jesus Christ still came and died for you and I. Jesus did good to those who hated him. He responded kindly, peacefully, compassionately. The Old Testament, God says, I reign on the just 
and the unjust, showing kindness and goodness even to those who hate him. For Jesus wished well, he blessed those who cursed him. And he wanted nothing but the best for them. And he knew that the best for them was him dying for the sins that they were committing against him. Isn't that overwhelming in and of itself? Jesus blessed those who cursed him. Jesus prayed for those who mistreated him. From the cross, he said, Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. Jesus did not retaliate when persecuted, being whipped 39 times, having a crown of thorns placed upon his head to the point that the thorns penetrated his own skull. But yet he did not retaliate. He did not cry out. He did not call for legions of angels to come and rescue him. He allowed it and showed the ultimate good for paying the price for the evil that was being portrayed upon him. Jesus freely gave to all who asked. He died with nothing. He died empty-handed, having no place to lay his own head, Having very little in material possession, Jesus gave all that he did have freely to you and I for our benefit and on our behalf. And in everything that Jesus did, he showed us the Father. From everything that he said and did and the manner in which he interacted with people at every step of the way, Only Jesus could say to you and I, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. To be merciful as my Father is merciful. To forgive as my Father gives. To love as my Father loves. Perfectly displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Now, I want you to do the same. I want you to show these things to an ungrateful, evil world. And it's going to mean a sacrifice on your behalf. It means looking out for their betterment at the expense of yours. It means to take up your cross, deny yourself, and to follow after me. This is what our Lord is asking of us, that we may be known to be Christians, where it's not all about us but it's all about him. For you and I who are followers of Jesus Christ, this world is the worst it's ever going to get. And I say this over and over and over again. It's only going to get better. But for one who is in this world, this world is the best it's going to be. And as you and I are confronted by the evils and the, and the horrors of this world as we were this week when a child is murdered at the hands of their own parents, you say, Lord, where is the justice? And God says, my son died for them too. And though I personally would like to retaliate and, oh, I would like to do some things to those parents and I'm sure you would also, God's going to handle that. For he says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I am asking you to be witnesses for me. I'm asking you to love your enemies. 
I'm asking you to sacrifice yourself for their benefit. And he is asking this of us because that's exactly what he did for us. Then why should we not do it for others?